welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, international best-selling author Barry Eisler stepped into the interrogation room to answer a few questions. Barry's published works include 14 novels, four short stories, and two essays. He spent three years in a covert position with the CIA's Directorate of Operations, then worked as a technology lawyer and startup exec in Silicon Valley in Japan, earning his black belts at the Kodokan Judo Institute along the way. His award-winning thrillers have been included in numerous best-of lists, including the number one bestseller called The Detachment, and his works have been translated into nearly 20 languages. When Barry's not writing novels, he spends some of his time blogging about torture, civil liberties, and the rule of law. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Barry. Thank you for making time to join me today. Thanks for having me on, Gavin. Of course, it's my pleasure. Your latest release called The Killer Collective, uh, released on February 1st, and your existing fans will be drawn in by the assembly of the lone wolf protagonists from your previous novels. For readers new to you as an author, what would you like them to know about The Killer Collective? Killer Collective, you can think of as my uh, my Avengers, my Avengers <laughs> Wars, because I've had three series going, and there've been some crossover. There's been some crossover between some of the series characters before. There's the John Rain universe. John Rain is uh, half Japanese, half American assassin whose specialty is making perfect natural causes. There's Ben Trevin, who's a black ops soldier, and there's Livia Lone, a Seattle sex crimes detective who's not just investigating rapists, but she's not just putting them in prison, she's putting them around. And the Killer Collective is the first time where I've brought all three of those characters and their universes together in one book. Wow, that's fantastic. There's a tremendous diversity among those characters in terms of you know, skill set and paradigm mentality. And, and also I would expect kind of talents and research. How, how did you go about setting up or uh, doing the research and the work necessary to write authentic characters with those three very different backgrounds? Well, the short answer, I guess, would be it's the same process I use when I'm doing any kind of a solo book. Uh, I think to get to know your characters as well as you ought to as a novelist, you have to spend a lot of time, at least I do, this works for mm -hmm. me, different people have different processes, but I spend a lot of time thinking about those characters. Where did they come from? What are their formative experiences? What are their hopes? What are their fears? What do they, what do they want? What do they think they want? What do they really want? What motivates them? All these sorts of questions. And some of this will be informed by what we might think of as research, Mm -hmm. So having spent some time uh, in a covert position at the CIA, I have some familiarity with the world of intelligence. And so coming up with someone with that kind of background who lives in that kind of world is relatively accessible for me. Sure. Uh, when I wrote Livia, she's a cop. That's not a world I know firsthand. So I read a lot of books on the topic. I, I wanted to stay away from movies and television shows about cops because, again, just for me, I don't know how other people are, but I don't like to see these things portrayed in fiction or it starts getting in my head and 
I am afraid I won't come up with something fresh and original if it's influenced by someone else's character, someone else's story. So a lot of nonfiction. Uh, and if I'm watching anything that's video, it's going to be documentaries. Uh, try to do interviews of experts. I was fortunate to be um, to be able to spend a decent amount of time with uh, people from the Seattle Police Department. It took me on a ride alone, very generous with their time in answering my questions, uh, generous with their time in answering all my follow-up questions. So that's the kind of stuff I've done with Livia that we might think of as more formal research. But again, the imagination element, the, the, all those questions about who the character is and where the character comes from, where the character is going, those are critical questions for any character you write. And then to put all those characters together, uh, the background research and thinking and uh, imaginative exercises, all of that, I guess, is the same. What I found worked really well in The Killer Collective and what make I think part of what makes it such a fun book is, as you say, the characters are also different. They have such different worldviews, worldviews, such different motivations, mm -hmm. and um, there's overlap in their skill sets, but a lot of differences in their skill sets or experiences also. These are really strong characters, and strong characters like strong weather systems, when they collide, you get storms. So, so that's, uh, that's part of what made the book work. If the characters are more similar, I think it might have been dull. It just would have been agreeing all yes. the time. It wasn't like <laughs> no tension. <clears throat> exactly. When you mentioned the uh, your research on the the, the Seattle uh, Police Department and, and trying to get you know mm -hmm. uh, authentic references and frame of reference instead of just going off of fiction, um, if you know I were trying to write something about the CIA, I'm, I'm sure that. I would have the same kind of difficulties and you know, the, I'm sure the fictional portrayals you see of the CIA and espionage in general have incredible flaws uh, based on your true insider information. How do you balance the reader expectations of the genre with their demands for authenticity? And especially when you're dealing with strategy and tactics that folks downrange are actually using to hunt bad guys all over the world today. Right. The first thing I'd say about this is that, there's not really any right or wrong answer. You just have to decide what you're doing. The only mistake would be to think you're doing it one way and in fact, you're doing it another. What I mean by that is, so when I was in high school, I used to read uh, Eric Van Lusbader's books. I don't, and, and not just high school. I mean, his books are really fun. I didn't mean to make it sound like it was just a high school thing, but that's when I happened to be reading. Sure. Eric Van Lusbader's books, The Ninja and uh, uh, White Ninja, Shido Ninja. And uh, I once read an interview with Les Bader, and what he said is he writes books set in Japan, <clears throat> but he's never been to Japan. And he said, I don't want to go to Japan. I'm afraid that encountering the real <laughs> would interfere with the Japan of my imagination. And I, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. This yes. is an author who knows exactly what he's trying to do, and he does it. There's nothing wrong with presenting a fantasy portrayal of, in this case, Japan. And likewise, uh, there are plenty of movies that present fantasy portrayals of martial arts and fighting. So a, a classic example, I think, would be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, a movie I thought was beautiful and that I really enjoyed. But there's nothing about the fighting that's realistic. I mean, people are floating up into the trees as they fight. Yeah. That, that's not real, obviously. But it completely works within the, um, the imaginative rules of that universe. So that would be one extreme of, look, you can do anything you want. I think the only, <clears throat> the only rule is that you have to do it consistently. 
You can't violate your own internal rules. The internal rules that I try to hew to have much more to do with realism. I'll leave it to readers to, de to decide whether I'm actually bringing it off. But for whatever reason, that's just my style and that's the kind of universe I'm always trying to create. My plots are taken from the headlines. My, uh, my combat, my unarmed combat techniques are as close as I can get to the real thing from having spoken to and, and having as, uh, as friends, people who've lived through this stuff and, uh, and know what it's really like and have, uh, and have been generous in, in sharing their experiences with me. So books, the interviews, I have something of a martial arts background myself, try to combine all these things. And, and then always the imaginative element. Your, your imagination should be informed by all that uh, knowledge, experience, research, reading, interviews, whatever. So I try to get all the, the combat and the martial arts as realistic as I can. The places I actually visit, I never make things up. I describe these places as they exist, as I find them, whether it's Tokyo, Macau, Washington, D.C., Paris, all the places where my novels are set. And that stuff is really important to me. The way operators look at the world, the way they carry themselves, the things they focus on. I love using that sort of realism as a, a template. Mm -hmm. Some people might find it uh, overly restricting to, to be so reality-based in their fiction. And I guess you could make an argument that, uh, that hewing so closely to reality because it it forecloses certain possibilities is therefore restrictive. I actually find the opposite. The closer I can stay to reality, the more interesting it becomes for me because I can't solve problems by resorting to bullshit. I have to, yes. I have to solve them in the, in the real way. So even just to take one critical example, one trivial example, uh, there's a fair amount of surveillance and counter surveillance in my books. Mm -hmm. I rely on what I, um, I, what I went through, what I was trained in when I was a career trainee with the CIA. And as one small thing, if you want to surveil someone's house in a suburban neighbor, neighborhood, <laughs> can't, uh -huh. you can't just rely on being able to park outside their house waiting a half hour and oh, there they go and, yes. and good. Yeah, you might be out there for a long time. Could be 24 hours, could be overnight. Who knows, people come and go at odd hours. Maybe they're on vacation when you come. How do you know these things? How do you know when to get there? What are you going to do sitting in your car all day on a suburban street? You don't think that looks a little bit suspicious? Somebody might ask. Somebody might call the cops. These are, what do you do when you have to go to the bathroom? These are real world problems that people who've done any kind of surveillance, whether it's law enforcement or intelligence, they know they have to deal with. And on the one hand, some people might get frustrated with these real world limitations. Well, I don't want to deal with that. I just, I'm just looking for a plot point. My, um, my spy gal, she pulls up outside the house. The bad guy comes out. My gal, uh, she follows him. That's what I'm trying to go for. And my feeling is, okay, but if you deal with it in a real way, it's going to create a lot more obstacles mm -hmm. that can become interesting story points. And you know what? One, I'll tell you one other thing that frustrates me. Um, <laughs> much. Uh, it, it's, it's a trope in almost everything. Every crime drama, every spy drama. Uh, somebody walks into somebody walks into her house, and uh, and there's somebody in there already. Every time, I mean, even in great movies like um, 
Get Shorty, which I consider uh-huh. to be a nearly perfect movie. Yeah, I when love it. Gene Hackman comes downstairs, he's living with um, his, girl, his girlfriend, uh, Renee Russo, and yes. comes downstairs, and John Travolta, Chili Palmer, he's already waiting down there watching TV. How did Chili get in the house? Oh, look, maybe he's an expert lockpicker. Okay, maybe I'll buy that, but I got to fill in that to tell myself. But every time, even cops, even people who are in the life and have to be careful, they get home and there's somebody waiting inside. How did that person get inside the house? It's not trivial to break into a house. No, in a neighborhood where people might see you do it, especially in an era where nearly everybody's got a ring or a Nest video camera, doorbell, whatever, outside the front door. These are not trivial problems. And sure, if you just want to, hey, I don't care how it happens. I just want my uh, bad guy to be waiting downstairs. It's great for drama and somebody's surprised to, to see him there. Okay. I mean, you can definitely do it that way. But if you deal with the real world, difficulties of breaking into a house waiting in the house by the way you're waiting for you're waiting for somebody what if somebody else comes home what if the housekeeper shows up the repair person a guest these things happen any operator will tell you that it's murphy's law and if you deal with if you incorporate that level of realism in your books you wind up with a lot more obstacles than what for me is a more interesting and ultimately a more compelling story since i write thrillers thrillers have to be thrilling Thrilling means scary. What's more scary than reality, the things that can really happen? So that's, that's my approach, uh, and it works well, I think, for my brand and the kind of stories I'm creating. I think, though, the, that all that said, the only rule is decide what you're doing and make sure that the tools you're using are appropriate to the task. Okay, one last thought about this, which is this. Shoot. Whenever I've done martial arts uh, my whole life, starting when I was a teenager, it's always, my interest and my training has always been about self-defense. That's mm-hmm. what interests me about martial arts. But that doesn't mean that self-defense is the only value uh, in martial arts training. You can 100% use martial arts for exercise or you can use them for discipline or as uh, a way of studying some sort of ancient, if it's Asian martial arts, like in Asia and a traditional Asian art form, you want to just become acquainted with it the way you might become acquainted with bonsai or, or any other uh, Asian art form. Those are all totally 100% legitimate reasons to study martial arts. The only mistake would be in thinking that you're training in martial arts for one reason, but what you're actually doing is something else. Like you think you're getting self-defense training but really you're just getting some exercise. That wouldn't be good because if you're training in martial arts in a way that's useful only for exercise, but not good for self-defense, and when you encounter a self-defense situation, you'll be as, as well prepared for it as someone who does, say, Pilates or, or something like yes. that. Nothing wrong with Pilates. It's good for your body, but it's not so great okay. uh, to get you ready for self-defense. Yeah, you'd be dangerous only to yourself at that point. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's actually worse to think that you are protected when you're not yes. and to realize you're not protected. Like if your house is wide open to a burglar, that's not good. But at least if you know that, uh, you have a certain level of preparedness. But if you think your house is a fortress and it's really wide open, that's, that's pretty much the worst combination. Yeah, there's really nothing as dangerous as perceived security that doesn't exist, you know, whether exactly. it's yeah, any, in any form. Uh, your, your first book, which is originally entitled Fall Rain and is now known as A Clean Kill in Tokyo, Rainfall, right. As uh, I apologize. As, as uh-huh. I understand, it was... Uh, the the uh, problem was that the titles were so forgettable, so please... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain the mistake is mine and my research here. Um, but that, that first published, I think, in 2003. So if my math is right, that means you probably right. started writing about John Rain in or around 1995, 96. So how has your relationship with Rain changed over the last 24, 25 years? And do you now count him among your oldest friends? It's <laughs> funny. Uh, yeah, Rain, A Clean Kill in Tokyo, um, first published by Penguin Putnam under the title Rainfall in 2002. I'd like to say that I, uh, oh yeah, it was published in 2002 and I had started it uh, sometime in the late 90s. Didn't take me very long at all. <laughs> the truth is, I, yes. I started that book in 1993 when I was first living in Tokyo and I got this. I was just in love with the city and all the experiences I was having there, training in judo at the Kodokan, which is um, the, the birthplace of modern judo and Mecca for, uh, for anyone who's involved in judo, going to these wonderful jazz clubs and whiskey bars and coffee places, and just, just intoxicated by everything about that incredible, vibrant city. And then I got an idea, really more of an image of two men following another man down a street in a certain part of the city, a street called Dogenzaka in Shibuya. And uh, I started asking, who are these guys? Why would they be following this guy? Oh, they're assassins. They're going to kill him. <laughs> Every time I came up with an answer to these questions, it presented more questions, which I learned uh, just by, uh, by doing in retrospect that that's how, that's how you write a story. You get an idea. Often it's a what if question. And then you keep subjecting your answers to, to more who, what, where, when, why, and how questions, and a story starts to emerge. That was 1993, but it took me uh, a long time. I mean, it must have been at least four years, I'm, I'm guessing, if I'm remembering correctly. No, it was more than four years. It was more like five years <clears throat> before I found someone who was willing to represent me. And then it was, or even, I forget now, it's been more years than that, but anyway, my, the, the agent who was representing me at the time, Nat Sobel, first uh, who's a terrific editor helped me get this thing up to speed and uh, sold the rights to it in 2001 so it took me about eight years from first concept to first sale of rights uh to to write that first manuscript and i, I always hesitate to say that because i don't know whether people will find that news encouraging or discouraging but for me, it's encouraging. I think yes. it just takes as long as it takes. And, and the lesson for me is that you have to stick with it. You should stick with it. The thing that kept me going when uh, no one in the outside world had any reason to believe in me. I mean, my wife believed in me, but even she believed in me. In a, I mean, you don't want to be foolish and you don't want yes. to be um, yeah. blind in your belief. You know, she could see that I was working seriously at it. She could see that I had some talent. But are you actually going to be able to go the distance and make something of this? It, that depends. There's a certain degree of luck and timing and circumstance involved in all that. So who really knows? But the thing that kept me going was this. And I think this is probably useful for other writers. On any given day, you'll be faced with a choice uh, between whether you want to work on the manuscript or whether you want to do something else. And there's always a good reason to do something else. There's, mm -hmm. there's always what feels like a compelling reason to do something else. Writing a manuscript is a long process. I mean, these days it, typ it typically takes me about eight months uh, to finish a book. And 
I know people who are faster. I know people who are slower. That's what it takes me now. Well, that's compared to eight years for the first one. And the reason I'm faster now is because I learned, I just know what I'm doing now. I have a much better uh, understanding and of and ability with the craft. That first time I was like someone who's good with tools, but who's never built mm-hmm. a house, made a lot of mistakes. The walls were falling down. I had to put them back up again. It took a long time, but eventually I did build the house and I learned a lot about house building in the process. So that's all good. But the thing that kept me going anytime I was tempted to do anything else, watch TV, do anything other than work on the manuscript during my free time, I would ask myself, how are you going to feel if one day <laughs> at the end of your life, you weren't published, mm-hmm. you didn't make it. This is before self-publishing. And so the only route to uh, mass market of readers was a traditional publishing contract. You'll look in the mirror and you'll say, I wonder what would have happened if I'd finished that manuscript. And even now when I talk about that question, it still makes my skin crawl. It was such a horrifying possibility that I would look in the mirror at the end of my life and wonder what would have happened if you'd finished that manuscript. I wonder what, what, what it could have been. And I thought, I don't know whether I'm going to make it. I don't know whether I'll get published, et cetera. But I was determined that if I didn't get published, it wasn't going to be my fault that I was going to do everything in my power to make it as likely as possible that I would get published. And then if I didn't get published and I was looking in the mirror at the end of my life, that I have nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to regret. I wouldn't, I would know it wasn't my fault that I did all I could do. And I'd be proud of that. And I'm nothing. And and that was the thing I'd be like, all right, got to work on the manuscript. Got to do this because there's no way I'm going to be in that position where I didn't get published and it was my fault. I might not get published, but it's not going to be my fault. So that kept me going. And I I think maybe that that kind of uh, viewpoint can be helpful to anyone. And by the way, it doesn't apply just to writing novels. It applies Mm. to the acquisition of any skill that relies on uh, some sort of daily, ideally daily or near daily training or practice or whatever it could be learning a foreign language or a musical instrument or a martial art or any skill hey any day you miss it so what it's a years-long process and the truth is if you think that you're not wrong i mean in in, in something that takes a year or five or ten years to accomplish missing a day is nothing it's a, it's a drop in the ocean but maybe not the ocean but a lake or something like that sure. but but those drops add up and so you just, you can't think that way. You, you can't acknowledge the reality of, so what if I miss today? You just, you just have to say, today counts, every day counts. And those days add up one way or the other. If you, if you stay in the saddle every one of those days, it, it really adds up. And if, even if it takes you eight years as it took me, uh, it certainly was worth the effort. And by the way, sorry, it would have been worth the effort even if it hadn't turned out the way I was hoping it would because mm-hmm. you don't want to have anything to be ashamed of. You don't you don't want to have anything to regret. No, you know, I think most people when they get to the, uh, their, their twilight or golden years, however you want to refer to it, uh, you know, on death's door, um, the folks that I've talked to in that position almost universally regret the things they didn't do. You know, very few of them are, are actually trying to confess anything or express sorrow for what they did. It's almost always yeah. what they didn't do. Yeah. Um, what would have, what would have happened if I tried this or that? That's right. You know, I think that's an important lesson. Uh, old old people know better. <laughs> yes. Longer. Actually, I did a yeah. talk on this. If anyone's curious, if you just Google my name, Barry Eisler, E I S L E R, and uh, TEDx Tokyo, the TED Talks. This was a TEDx yes. Tokyo talk I gave about ten years ago. It's called Conversations with Your Future Self. 
And this is the notion, like if you're having trouble making a decision, ask yourself how you'll feel about the decision tomorrow, a year from now, 10 years from now, at the end of your life. Try to get in touch through your imagination with what your future self is trying to tell you because your future self knows better. She or he has been around for longer. You should probably listen to the advice your future self is giving you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, really, uh, I really enjoyed uh, watching that as, as part of my research for the interview and, and your- Oh, thank you. Thank your, you for that. Oh, I, I'm glad that, uh, glad that it's out there for everyone. As I, I really enjoyed your description or paradigm about that as being like personal time travel. And that is such an amazing concept. I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of, kind of mind blowing. I, I really, I've really liked that. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And th thanks for enjoying the, um, the talk. I certainly enjoyed giving it. Now from your, your previous background prior to writing, um, in, in government service, um, before I became a cop, I always kind of thought of local government was kind of where all the Muppets worked and the state government might kind of have more going for them and that the federal entities were these shiny beacons of like best yeah. practice and efficiency. And yeah. after I, I spent a few years interacting with a, a number of agencies across that spectrum, my opinion on that totally reversed. Um, how did your work at the CIA kind of match your expectations or vary from them and everything you'd seen in the recruiting videos? Uh, I would say in many ways, my experience tracked yours and now when i remember seeing a movie it was a long time ago at least at least 20 years ago maybe longer a movie called the recruit with al pacino and colin farrell oh yeah and so yeah you know it's like uh, al pacino plays this uh, hardened cia veteran who, who goes out and recruits colin farrell to the agency and then it's all about colin farrell's training and it's so over the top mm -hmm. uh and I remember nudging my wife and I was like, oh, yeah, that's what it, that's what it was like, babe. That's what, it was like. <laughs> that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I see the born movie. Exactly. I see the born movies and, and everything works like the proverbial fine Swiss watch. Yes. Everybody's so squared away. The technology is perfect. There are never any glitches. And again, in line with what I was saying earlier, uh, there's, there's, there's no right or wrong answer in terms of how much realism you want to inject about how how squared away government agencies are on the one hand versus how dysfunctional on the other dysfunctional obviously being, being much closer to reality there's no right or wrong answer but you should just know what you're doing don't don't do something that's incredibly squared away and think that you're presenting something realistic because for sure you're not uh sometimes i say to people when when people think though the cia or the nsa or whatever oh my god they're they're just like this godlike agency that does everything right i say have you ever been to the post office have you ever been to the dmv that's the government that's the the rules of the laws of physics as they apply to government agencies apply equally to the cia and nsa as they do to the post office and the dmv um it's that's that's just the nature of the beast the rest is marginal differences really so i think it's important to keep all that sort of stuff in mind uh how old the technology is how the left hand and the right hand don't know what each other are doing. I don't mean to put anyone down. There's some, in any organization and in any government organization, you're going to find outstanding individuals and individuals who are dot, 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 less than outstanding. Yes. Uh, when I was at CIA, um, I did something called the SOTSI, the Special Operations Training Course. I don't know what the deal is today, but at the time it was a seven week paramilitary training course um, at the agency's facility in um, 
called the farm in, in um, Camp Perry, Virginia. And the instructors there were former Army Special Forces, Marine Force Recon, uh, some uh, people, some CIA veterans, but veterans of Vietnam. And these people had some extremely significant experience among them. And they were extremely squared away people. Very impressive. Uh, I was lucky to have them as my instructors. I thought they were, in many ways, the as a, as a culture and a unit, I thought they were in the most squared away that I encountered uh, in all of the agency. But not to, again, not to say that there were not standing individuals in um, in all the different departments, but there were some there there was some dysfunction. That I'll tell you just one funny story. Sure. Uh, there was some dysfunction that was just mind-boggling to me. So, as part of my training, again, it's probably different at the time because this is between 1989 and I'm sorry, it's probably different now mm-hmm. than it was at the time because this was 1989 to 1992. But uh, as a career trainee, I was in the Directorate of Operations, now called the National Clandestine Service. So I was trained to be a spy uh, rather than, say, an analyst or a science and technology person or an administrator. But everybody who was a career trainee got rotated to different uh, directorates. So you could just, it was a good idea. So you could, you don't want things to be too siloed. You want to see, like, if you're a spy, you're collecting the intel. Well, you want to know what the analysts in the Directorate of Intelligence are going to be doing with that intel. And that'll help you. Um, seek out hopefully and uh, the, the best most useful intel and present it in the most useful ways now that you know what the analysts do anyway so this is I don't know 1989 or so and I was I spent I think it was two months with um, the the Soviet division in the Directorate of Intelligence and I was tasked with analyzing the new Soviet Constitution. This is the era of Glasnost and Perestroika mm-hmm. under Mikhail Gorbachev. And I didn't know I didn't speak Russian. I'd never been to the Soviet Union. I didn't I had no special expertise whatsoever. So it made perfect sense that the government would have me analyzing the new Soviet Constitution, your tax dollars at work. But still I thought, all right, I'm gonna give this my best. And um, in the new constitution, there was a guarantee of free speech. So just using logic and common sense, as I try to do, it's always a good guide, even when you don't uh, really know the particulars. I pointed out that it, it couldn't in and of itself have been a particularly big deal that the new constitution guaranteed free speech, because after all, even the Stalin era uh, Soviet constitution guaranteed free speech, and there wasn't a lot of free speech in Stalinist. <laughs> in the Stalin Stalinist, St. Stalin Soviet Union. So I turned this in, and then my uh, while later, my supervisor sat down and she said, sat down with me and said, So I see that you don't think that the new constitution's guarantee of free speech is that big a deal. And I said, Well, I'm not saying it's not necessarily a big deal. I'm saying like it, it alone can't be a big deal because mm-hmm. there was always freedom of speech guaranteed in the, con- in the previous constitutions. And yet there was no free speech. So if, if there's going to be a change, it won't be because of what's newly in the, what's now in the Constitution. That's always been in the Constitution. It'll have to be some sort of cultural change or something like that. I think that's what's going to matter. And there's a pause and she says, but why don't you think that a constitutional guarantee of free speech is important? <laughs> I'm not making this up. And so I thought, huh, okay. And I tried to explain another way. And, and I would explain just the way I just explained to you. Yes. Variations on this theme. And at the end of every explanation, she would say something like, 
but but this is a constitutional guarantee of free speech really i know it sounds extreme but and and it was just mind-boggling to me and eventually i rewrote this thing to uh so that she would be pleased but because what are you going to do i mean she's she's my super right? yes. <laughs> it's yeah. a big deal i'll try to say it was a big it's a big deal uh, and then I saw the movie This Is Spinal Tap with the famous This One Goes to Eleven scene. And I thought, oh, my God, I actually, I went through that. This is, if anyone doesn't know the movie, it's, it's a mockumentary. And Rob Reiner, director Rob Reiner, is interviewing one of the rock stars who's very pleased about his new amplifier, which instead of going up only to 10, this new amplifier goes all the way, the dial goes to 11. And he's really excited about how powerful it is as a result. And Rob Reiner says, well, are you sure it's more powerful? I mean, it might just be that it's the same power, but instead of 10 gradations, it has 11, but it's, it's got the same power as the old one. And, and the rocker, there's a pause and the rocker says, but this one goes to 11. And then Rob Reiner explains again why that, okay, that might be significant, but it's not really what what matters what we need to know is how much yeah. and, and they go back and forth like that so anyway that was my this one goes to 11 moment and that's a lot of what it's like to work in, in a big government bureaucracy in my experience and if you want to present reality in spy thrillers or and i'm sure uh in crime uh fiction police procedurals whatever you should definitely take into account that most big organizations are beset with various forms of dysfunction. And that's just, that's just the way it is because that's the way humans are wired. Some will be worse and some will be less worse. But if you're not, but if you're pretending that no organizational dysfunction exists, then you might have written a, a fun, dramatic, uh, entertaining story, but it won't be a realistic one. Now with all of, all of that previous explanation, I'm, I, I, my future self would really be saddened and regret me not having asked this, but where were you in the day the Berlin Wall fell in November of 89? I was at the CIA, but I, I don't remember the exact moment the way, the way <clears throat> uh, older people remember where they were when they learned that Kennedy was shot or the way uh, our generation, I guess, remembers where we were when we first heard about 9-11, that the Twin Towers had been hit by airplanes. Um, I, I don't remember like that specific, oh, I was right, you know, walking down whatever corridor, that I don't remember. Yeah, the uh, my uh, my stepdad was a uh, a news um, junkie is the, the the best way to put it, and I remember I was uh, twelve, and we got called in from riding bikes and having fun to sit down and watch the news about something happening in a faraway land, and apparently yeah. it was really important, and yeah. a whole lot of people somewhere else were really happy about it, so. Yeah. You know, the, yeah, a, a bit of a watershed, but you know, didn't put it in perspective until later. Yeah, yeah. So out of out of respect for uh, for your time, Barry, I'll, I'll start going through the getting the, the getting us out of here. Um, it's my last, fault. My, my answers are always too long. <laughs> no, I, I I love meeting people who talk as much as I do. It makes me feel better about myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who who is your favorite fictional detective or investigator of any type? Could be. Any, anyone who investigates or, or, or finder of facts in fiction? Um, there's, a, there's a novelist who's been a big influence on me, and uh, 
his name is Andrew Vax, V-A-C-H-S-S. And he's got a character, a series character named Burke, who um, he is an investigator, although not in any kind of traditional sense. He's not a former cop and he's not, strictly speaking, a PI. Um, but his thing is what, what he's motivated by is a hatred of people who harm children. Mm, and I like him already. Burke, yeah, the, the Burke novels are great. Burke lives in this gritty underbelly of New York City. He's definitely an investigator of sorts because in, uh, in the course of, he typically gets brought into something for one reason or another. It could be paid to do something. It could be as, uh, something for a friend. It could be something because he, even though Burke would never want to admit this to himself, the injustice of it is what, um, is what moves him. Burke himself is a criminal, mostly preying on other criminals. Uh, super interesting character living in this incredibly gritty underbelly uh, depiction of New York City. And uh, I, I could go on and on about Burke. Uh, he, at the, off the top of my head, I would say that's my favorite investigator. And if anyone's curious about more, if you go to my website, barryeisler.com, there's a link, I think it's called Cool Stuff. Yes. Go to Cool Stuff and you'll see something about my contribution to Thriller's 100 Best Reads or something. And it's about Vax and his books. Now, leading that last question leads us to this next one. And I, I put everybody through this little gauntlet, but God forbid it should come to pass, Barry. But if you wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, mm -hmm. or general revenge artist would you want on the case? Burke, John Rain, anyone else you can you can pick mm -hmm. who gets it. It's it's your murder. Alone. <laughs> I would want Livia. I would want Livia alone. I would, I would want Livia alone for her skills, her tenacity, and her ferocity. But um, but I I it makes me a little sad to say it, but Livia, you know, a, a murdered. Uh, 55 year old novelist wouldn't be the wouldn't be the thing that gets her out of bed in the morning not that she's a fan of murder no matter who's being murdered but what what makes Livia the the force of nature that she is is harm or abuse to children girls women some degree the elderly anyone who's who's not able to defend themselves and who's preyed on by someone who's stronger which is an experience Livia had when she was a girl um, that's the thing that makes her the force of nature that she is so as regrettable as she might find uh, it to learn that uh, you know that a 55 year old novelist was <laughs> murdered that might not be um, that's that's not her daily uh, caseload with Seattle PD wouldn't wouldn't be her first choice of case there. So where can uh, where can readers connect with you and your works and uh, pick up a copy of the Killer Collective? Well, if you Google Barry Eisler, you'll find my website, Facebook page, Twitter page, and uh, and that'll that'll get you going. The Killer Collective, the easiest place to find it would just be on Amazon. Fantastic. Well, I greatly appreciate your time, Barry. It was fantastic speaking with you and. Uh, for everyone else, you've been listening to Writers on the Beat. 
where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been former CIA operative and international best-selling author Barry Eisler. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. Thank you.